When was the last time you changed your mind? That's a really hard thing to do because it sort of ties into all those other things, how we think about ourselves, whether we really are humble, which is a prerequisite to changing your mind, whether you really are confident, which is also a prerequisite to changing your mind. When was the last time you changed your mind? Well, changing your mind requires certain things that none of us as human beings are good at. First, it requires listening. It's really hard to be a good listener. In some conversations, what passes for listening is actually just a pause, because all you're doing is waiting for the other person to shut up so you can continue talking. That's not really listening. Real listening isn't a pause. Real listening is something much more profound and much deeper than that. It's trying to absorb what the other person is saying. I'm Matthew Kahn, and you're listening to The Lawfare Podcast, February 13th, 2018. Chuck Rosenberg spent most of his career leading or helping lead federal law enforcement agencies. Before serving as head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, Rosenberg served as Jim Comey's chief of staff at the FBI and the Justice Department, as counselor to FBI Director Robert Mueller, and as U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. Now outside government, Rosenberg shared his thoughts on leadership with a group of University of Virginia law students two weeks ago. And now we are sharing his thoughts with you. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 283. Chuck Rosenberg on value-based leadership. I'm going to ask five questions. You don't have to shout out answers. In fact, I guess I think I'd prefer that you don't. But here are the five questions, because I think they're worth thinking about. First is an historical question. Who was the featured speaker on November 19, 1863, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, at the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery? All right, we'll get to that in a minute. The other questions. Do you live in a small town? Have you ever coached a little league team? Do you know the name of the person who empties the trash in your office? Okay. And when was the last time you changed your mind? And those are the five questions I want to talk about today. So first one, by the way, does anyone happen to know the name of the featured speaker, November 19, 1863, at the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania? Anyone know? Edward Everett. A lot of people would think it was Abraham Lincoln, but it's not. Edward Everett, fascinating guy. He had been a governor, a senator, a secretary of state, a member of the House of Representatives, and had been the president of Harvard University. And he was a gifted orator, and he was the featured speaker. Lincoln was a bit of an afterthought, actually. In fact, I, don't even, I think he was invited well after Everett had been invited. Everett spoke for over two hours. Lincoln spoke for two minutes. Lincoln's entire speech was 272 words, 271 in some versions. There's actually five original versions of that speech that exist. But let's say 272 words, when we can all agree, 10 sentences. And we remember him, but not Everett. So I am not going to say anything nearly as interesting or as profound as Lincoln today, but I will be much shorter uh, than Edward Everett. <laughs> Do you live in a small town? I can answer that question for you. The answer is yes. You live in a small town. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, which is, by the way, the reason I went to law school, I could find out the reputation of any other assistant U.S. attorney 
any federal agent, any defense attorney, any judge in the nation with two phone calls. Sometimes one, seldom three, usually two phone calls. You live in a small town. Whether or not you realize it, the way you behave, the way you conduct yourselves, the things you say, the things you do, the pictures you post on social media right, are available to everybody in what is essentially two phone calls. Right? So what I would ask you to do is be mindful of that. Conduct yourself in a way that you never have to sort of apologize or explain for anything you do. That's a tough thing to do. Um, but also to remember that reputation and character are two very different things. You know, your reputation is what other people think of you, perceive you to be. Your character is what you actually are when they're not looking. And in the perfect world, those two things align, that your reputation and your character are exactly the same. In reality, they sometimes diverge. But be mindful of the fact that you live in a small town. I know in the practice of criminal law in the Eastern District of Virginia in the Alexandria Division, and Rachel Harmon knows this too, we're repeat players. And so that enforces certain societal norms, right? You don't lie. You don't try to slip something past the judge. Uh, you play a long game, not a short game. You conduct yourself for the next week and the next month and the next year and not for today. So the answer is you live in a small town. Please don't forget that. My third uh, question, do you coach a Little League team? By that I mean, and I don't mean just a Little League team. Do you coach youth soccer? Do you volunteer at a homeless shelter? Do you sing at church? Do you do something else? Because what I always told the men and women of the FBI and the DEA when I was there is that I need you to live a balanced life. I need you to be well and healthy on the inside because this is really hard work and sometimes it's really dangerous work. And so in order to do this and bring everything that you got, I need you to be well and healthy on the outside. And how do you ensure that you're well and healthy on the outside? You do something else. You're a parent, you're a spouse, you're a friend, you're a brother or a sister, you're a coach or a mentor. You have to find time in your life to do that other thing. Because if you're only at work, then you're not as valuable, uh, I, I would say, as a citizen, let alone as an employee as you could be. So find that other thing. Coach Little League. Do you know the name of the person who empties your trash? This is one of the most important questions I have for you. And if you don't know the name of the person who empties your trash, my next question is why don't you know that name? So what I'm about to say I mean in a secular sense, not in a religious sense. Uh, I don't care what religion you are. I don't care if you have no religion at all. It's completely and utterly meaningless to me. We are all God's children. We are all exactly the same. If you think you're different than the man or woman who empties your trash, you're sadly mistaken. When I ran the DEA, I used to tell folks, because I meant it, that if I got hit by a bus and didn't come to work for the next three months, nobody would notice and nobody would care. If the woman, and her name was Aida, who emptied my trash stopped coming to work, you would notice immediately and you would care a lot. And so my expectation of every man and woman that I've ever hired for any job is that they know the name of the person who empties their trash, that they stand up when they walk in the room, they ask them how they're doing, 
and they show the same degree of respect that we would show to Judge Haddock as we would show to them. There's no difference. Knowing Judge Haddock, and I, I don't know him well, but I certainly know about him and of him, I know he would agree with me. We're all exactly the same. And so, that's my question. Do you know the name of the person who empties your trash? If you don't, you better learn it. I should also tell you, when I was a U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia and for the Southern District of Texas, the single best thing about my job, and those are cool jobs, I gotta admit to you, they're not that hard, uh, but they're really cool jobs. It was a lot harder to be an AUSA than it was to be the U.S. attorney. When, you're, when you're the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia, it's a little bit like coaching the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, right? Every now and then you get off the bench and you say, nice shot, Michael, and you sit back down. <laughs> Right, that's about it. But the coolest thing about that job is I actually got to hire the people who are gonna be our AUSAs. So I know that I'm at a top 10 law school. I know that all of you are crazy smart. I know there's no chance in hell I would have gotten in here today. In fact, I'm even surprised you invited me back to speak. But <laughs> we could have filled every single opening in the Eastern District of Virginia, literally could have filled every single opening in the Eastern District of Virginia with a Supreme Court clerk. We didn't. We filled some of them with Supreme Court clerks. But there's something that's a lot more important than how smart you are, because smart, frankly, is dime a dozen. You look left, right, forward and back, you've got smart people all around you. So what are we looking for? What we're looking for is emotional intelligence, and that's a completely different thing, okay? Emotional intelligence is your ability to perceive what's going on around you and interact with others in many different ways. So the analogy I've always used was, can you treat the bank robber or the probation officer or the cop or the woman who empties your trash the exact same way you treat the judge? And if the answer is no, we don't want you. Don't care about your grades and I don't care about your clerkships. We don't want you. And if you can do that, and you're willing to work really, really hard, and you recognize that you live in a small town, and you find balance in your life, then we do want you. It's really that simple. It doesn't reduce itself to metrics or grades, although that's a part of it, but it doesn't reduce itself to that. There's another point I want to make here. You inherit, by virtue of joining the United States Department of Justice, credibility. You don't you're not credible because your name is Jim Bryady and you just graduated from law school. You're credible because your name is Jim Bryady and you're part of the Alexandria Circuit Court. Or you're credible because your name is Rachel Harmon and you've joined the United States Department of Justice. And so when you say something in court, this is remarkable. People believe you. The coolest thing I ever did as an AUSA, I told you the coolest thing I ever did as a U.S. attorney was hire people. The coolest thing I ever did as an AUSA was stand up in court and say, Chuck Rosenberg on behalf of the United States of America. And I'm sorry if that sounds corny, but right now it gives me shivers to think that I got to say that in the federal district courts of the United States. But the thing you say next, whatever it is you say, is believed. And here's the dirty secret. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has only to do with all the men and women who've come before you. They are the ones who've handed you this amazing gift of credibility. And so what I've always asked new FBI agents, new DEA agents, new AUSAs, is protect that reservoir. 
right? How long does it take to fill a reservoir? A long time. How long does it take to taint it or poison it? In an instant. Absolutely crucial that you protect the reservoir. One way we do that, of course, and this is hard, is by identifying, admitting, and fixing our mistakes. We're all human, therefore we're all fallible, which means you're going to screw stuff up. Lord knows I do it every day. If you identify, admit, and fix your mistakes, you're going to be fine. If you cover them up or blame someone else, then you're not protecting the reservoir. The only thing I ever ask the public servants is that they understand the gift that they were receiving and that they gave it to the people who came after them in better shape than in which they found it. If you do that, I think you're going to be fine. I think it's worth mentioning that, I, and I've seen this, I had the privilege of working for Bob Mueller. And by privilege, I mean the privilege of getting up at 4.30 in the morning, <laughs> going home every night at 11 p.m. I've often said that I would walk uh, barefoot on broken glass for Bob Mueller. I should add that working for him felt that way often. This is the job I wanted most in the entire world. It was after 9-11, I was in private practice, and I wanted nothing more than to get back into government, and in this case with the FBI. I didn't know Bob Mueller, but through a friend of a friend of a friend, I think there were two UVA law connections in there, I interviewed with him to become his counselor for national security. And the interview, I'm not making this up, went as follows. And remember, I'm trying to hit this ball out of the park. The interview went as follows. And by the way, we never, and we never sat down in his office either. You don't sit down in Bob Mueller's office, you stand up, because sitting down takes way too much time, it's inefficient, okay? He said to me, why do you want this job? And I mumbled something about serving my country and joining the FBI post 9-11. And he said, why do you think you'd be any good at it? And I told him I'd been in the USA and I work hard and I care deeply. And at that point, he said, thanks for coming by, and he walks to the door to get rid of me. Entire interview, 17 seconds. It was obvious that I had completely bombed it. I didn't know what I did wrong. It was obvious that the man hated me and wanted me out of his office. So on the way out, I noticed a baseball on one of his shelves, and I love baseball. I'm a huge baseball fan. I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm thinking to myself, we're going to start talking baseball. And I said, I see you're a baseball fan. And he says, nope, and out the door I go. <laughs> Went back to my office, incredibly depressed. I got a phone call about two hours later. I said, Chuck? I said, yes, sir. He said, Bob Mueller? I said, yes, sir. He said, when can you start? I said, uh, how about two weeks? He said, see you in two weeks. And he hung up on me. And that's how I got back to the FBI. But let me tell you something about Bob Mueller, because I think it also illustrates some of the larger points I want to make. That there are certain pairs of traits that good leaders have that seem incongruous but in fact are not. What am I talking about? Being tough and kind. It would seem that being tough and kind are incongruous, that they don't go together, that they're not complementary. In fact, they are precisely complementary. Good leaders are tough and kind. When you do something wrong, they tell you what you did wrong and tell you what their expectations are. And they stand up and say hello to the woman who empties their trash. Good leaders are tough and kind. Let me tell you something else about good leadership which I've seen not just in Bob Mueller, but also in Jim Comey and others that I had the pleasure of working with and for, Sally Yates and Loretta Lynch. Good leaders are also confident and humble. Again, it sounds like an incongruous pair. How could you possibly be both? But good leaders know that they have to surround themselves with people who are smarter than they are. It's crucial. They're humble enough to know what they don't know. They're 
confident enough to be surrounded by people who do know. And that's one of the things I would ask you to take with you. You're all smart, but it's also okay to be humble. And it's also okay to be kind. In fact, it's mandatory, right? Got to do that. My last question, if you recall, was, when was the last time you changed your mind? That's a really hard thing to do because it sort of ties into all those other things, how we think about ourselves, whether we really are humble, which is a prerequisite to changing your mind, whether you really are confident, which is also a prerequisite to changing your mind. When was the last time you changed your mind? Well, changing your mind requires certain things that none of us as human beings are good at. First, it requires listening. It's really hard to be a good listener. In some conversations, what passes for listening is actually just a pause, because all you're doing is waiting for the other person to shut up so you can continue talking. That's not really listening. Real listening isn't a pause. Real listening is something much more profound and much deeper than that. It's trying to absorb what the other person is saying. If you like the editorial page of the New York Times, do you read the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal? If you like watching Fox, will you also watch MSNBC? Are you open to other ideas? Are you really truly listening? And when was the last time you changed your mind about something of consequence? I don't mean that you were thinking about going to Chipotle and you ended up at Wendy's. When was the last time you changed your mind about something of consequence? And if you haven't done that, right, then I think you're missing out. And you might be missing out because you're not listening. A lot of the problems that sort of confront us now are extraordinarily complex, but they're also polarizing. And sometimes it's hard to listen to people with whom we disagree, or at least we think we disagree. I've tried to become a better listener. I've tried to be humble and confident. Uh, I've tried to admit and identify and fix my mistakes. I've tried to be tough and kind. And everywhere I've gone, I've tried to stand up and learn the name of the woman or the man who, who empties my trash. You are very special and you're also very gifted by virtue of the fact that you go to a place like the University of Virginia. That will confer great benefits on you for the rest of your life, including friendships like the one that I have with Jimmy. Like I said, probably the most valuable thing that I took away from this place were friendships with people like Jimmy. But unless you're also emotionally intelligent, unless you also invest in people, take time to listen, and occasionally change your mind. You're leaving a lot on the table. I would urge you not to leave a lot on the table. You live in a small town, embrace that fact, live your life that way, treat others the way you would want to be treated. It's not that complex. And by the way, let me just put in a pitch for public service. I think that's the great privilege of coming from a place like the University of Virginia, the ability to serve the public. It's hard. Here's another dirty secret. It doesn't pay all that well, all right? You can make a lot more dough in a law firm. At the end of the day, what did you leave behind? At the end of the day, what did you do? Who did you take care of? What did you make better? And there's lots of ways to do that, by the way. I'm not saying you have to be a federal public defender or an assistant U.S. attorney to leave something behind and make something better. You can do it in lots of ways. You can coach a little league. But leave something behind. You've been given a great gift. I would ask you to pay it forward. Thanks very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
Thanks this week to the University of Virginia Law School for providing audio. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to tweet the Lawfare Podcast, share it on Facebook, tell your Valentine's date about it over dinner, and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Until next time, thanks for listening.